The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us, Jim Callis of MLB Pipeline. Coming up, we're going to get his thoughts on the draft as well as the White Sox organization, some of the top prospects. We'll get an update on their pitching. It's pretty important for this organization, so a lot to come on this episode. We're post-draft season, and we're going to talk to James Fox as you know he's been all over it. He jumped on the Sox Machine podcast with Josh Nelson recently. I encourage you to check that out. Our last episode on the Future Sox podcast was the most downloaded that we've seen in a very long time, so we appreciate your support. Go to SoxMachine.com and uh, sign up to become a patron if you're willing. That really helps us do what we do. James. As I preview Jim Callis, we're looking ahead now to the trade deadline a little bit. And Mike Shirley gave us a little bit of a a recap of the draft. And you listen to some of the audio. And I want to get your perspective on what he thinks, uh, as well as an update on Garrett Crochet. Because Garrett Crochet could be a starter, possibly down the road. So I want to talk on that. We also have an update on our top 30 list. We're waiting till past the deadline in August. Then we'll get going on our midseason list and uh, update our top 30 rankings for the White Sox post-draft season. A lot to get to. Let's start first, though, James, with what Mike Shirley had to say following his draft. What were some of your takeaways? You know, Mike, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, but I mean, like, we've seen three draft classes now. Like, Mike Shirley, big game hunter. I think it's, you know, it seems like, I mean, with the, you know, the Garrett Crochet pick and followed up by Colson Montgomery, you know, he, he followed his convictions there. And then this time with Noah Schultz, he just kept talking about how unique Noah Schultz is and they're focused on the premium upside there at 26, which I think is interesting. You know, I think the bonus pool usage is a little bit different this year. They took six good players with their first six picks, like instead of their, you know, their previous strategy. Which, I mean, was probably more so just because of like this small bonus pool, right? But I think you're on to something with like the type of pitcher he wants. They're definitely like data informed. You know, they're definitely looking for high spin rate guys, even if like one pitch, right? Like this, there's a Billy Seidel is a, 
15th rounder out of Duke that like wasn't great this year, but he has like super like crazy pitch uh, characteristics for his like angles and spin rates and stuff like that, like out of the bullpen. So, you know, this is like definitely something that the White Sox scouting staff has looked for is, you know, in, in pitchers for sure. And Paulette and even like the, the McLaughlin reliever, I think in the seventh had 2,900 spin breaking ball. So yeah, like I think, uh, I think you're definitely onto something there. You know, Mike Shirley, he's 45 picks now as scouting director and we seem to be developing some patterns, I guess, but you know, he's gone with a different demo every year in the first round so far. So maybe, uh, maybe college hitter next year in the first round, if it keeps going to form. Yeah. I appreciate you pointing that out. We're going to get Jim Callis's opinion on the way Mike Shirley values spin rate, pitch mix, all that stuff. Another thing that jumped out to me, James, was what Mike Shirley talked uh, on the Mullion Haw show on 670 The Score uh, in regards to Garrett Crochet, and he was very transparent. He said, this kid was a premium talent. We were trying to win, and this was obvious to anybody who was paying attention, but for them to, you know, the White Sox to be so forthright about it and said, hey, we needed to use him because we wanted to win, but now Tommy John surgery, he's going to rehab. They talked about, at least Shirley mentioned that they're going to leave the option open for Garrett Crochet to start again. How realistic is that to you? Well, I mean, Mike Shirley drafted a starter 11th overall two years ago. Like what happened after that, like wasn't really up to Mike Shirley. And he didn't blame the org. He said, look, like this guy's throwing a hundred at like the alternate site. Like, of course, bring him up to like the big league bullpen. I think we, we've talked about this. Like, I think the error was, you know, last season when they kept him in the big league bullpen instead of sending him down. But again, like if you're Tony La Russa, like what? Like you're not sending this guy to double A when he can help me out of the bullpen, right? So look, I don't think it's realistic. We've talked about this. I think I think he can start. I just think it's a tough transition for a team like the White Sox that's trying to win. But, you know, we'll we'll see, right? Like could he could he be in the rotation for for the Pirates or the A's or somebody like in 2023? Sure. Like absolutely. And then you massage his innings and try to stretch him out. I just I think that's tough for a team trying to win. But it seems like it might be part of the plan next year. Like we'll see that's, it's definitely what crochet wants. So it'll be something that's interesting to follow, obviously like in the lead up to, to next season. I feel like James, this was fun. We're going to continue this conversation with Jim Callis. Jim Callis is the goods. I know, you know who Jim Callis is. He's on MLB network and also MLB pipeline. One of the senior writers, the lead writers for prospects covering everything across the country. He's talking with us next here on the Future Sox podcast. Don't go anywhere. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, Jim Callis, MLB Pipeline. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. 
Oh, it's always a pleasure to welcome back Jim Callis to the Future Sox podcast, senior writer for MLB Pipeline following the Major League Baseball draft. Jim, thanks so much for jumping on the Future Sox podcast yet again. It's always a joy to get your evaluation of where the Sox farm stands. And over the last couple of conversations, we've been talking about how the White Sox have been at the bottom of the league in terms of organizational depth or talent. After this 2022 draft season, can you say that the White Sox have bolstered their organizational talent enough to say they're climbing out of the gutter um, in rankings? Um, well, I will say, I mean, everybody theoretically bolstered their farm system after the draft because you're, you're adding players and not giving them up. Um, we have not, we've been so immersed with the draft. We haven't tried to do new farm system rankings. Um, so I can't tell you like specifically where a club would rank. I mean, yes, you know, I, I, I like, you know, several of the players the White Sox added and they did, they did bolster their talent. They're still probably in the bottom five or 10 farm systems in baseball, I would think without having like, you know, delved deeply into trying to line them up. I mean, there's still, you know, I mean, every system has players you like. I mean, the, the White Sox don't have a ton of upper level talent where you're like, okay, that guy's like a future, you know, solid regular potential all-star, you know, double A, triple A and up. Like, I, I still don't think they're particularly strong in that regard. Dang it, Jim. Dang uh, it. I'm That's sorry. I'm sorry for raining on your optimism. <laughs> We understand. We understand totally. I'm curious how the Sox Farm ranks by the time MLB Pipeline does release updated farm system rankings, and especially for us, the conversations we have at Future Sox for midseason rankings around August or so. Uh, Jim, what did you think of Jackson Holiday going first to the Orioles? Was there any surprises across the first round of the draft specifically? That part wasn't surprising. Um, you know, we all knew we weren't going to know exactly who the Orioles were taking, but I felt like it was going to be Drew Jones or Jackson Holiday or Termar Johnson and they took Jackson Holiday and you know I, I think you can make the case uh, well I, I think it's true that, that he had the best combination of hitting ability and tools in the draft um, so it wasn't really surprised I mean I, I think the first real big surprise was was Kumar Rocker going third overall the Rangers I, I don't think anybody saw that one coming you know, there was some talk that Kate Horton who had a huge postseason for the Oklahoma Sooners might sneak into the top 10 and, and he went seven to the Cubs which I, I think, we, not that the Cubs took a picture because they were they were maybe rumored to maybe do that, but like you know that was a little bit of a surprise. You saw some guys like you know Cam Collier falling to eighteen. I think was was a surprise and a really nice get for the Reds. And and then toward the end of the first round, um, I think there were a lot of surprises. I know we're gonna talk about the White Sox too, but like you know Mikey Romero to the Red Sox, I don't think was getting a, a lot of first round buzz. Noah Schultz for the White Sox, Eric Brown for the Brewers, Xavier Isaac for the Rays, Reggie Crawford for the Giants. It's like some teams went, you know, obviously you like who you like and you, you try to figure out, okay, is this guy can get to our next pick. Um, and I think there were a lot of surprises in the last, you know, seven or so picks in the first round. So you mentioned Noah Schultz. Let's go there right away. White Sox taking a, a prep pitcher left-handed, 6'9", 220. We're really excited about what can become of this player. It's just the profile suggests that it's an unknown. What were your evaluations of Noah Schultz and how can he develop within the farm system as a as a soon-to-be 19-year-old? Yeah, no, I mean, there, there is a lot of unknown with Noah Schultz. Um, you know, I mean, he's super intriguing. He's six foot nine. He's 220 pounds. He throws from a really low arm slot that makes it difficult on lefties. You know, last summer, he kind of pitched 89 to 92 and touched 94. You know, he's got like some carry, but, you know, from, from his release in the low arm slot. And, you know, he's got, you know, just a, a horizontal, you know, when you throw from that angle, not a surprise, like a real horizontally sweeping slider. 
that's very tough, especially on lefties. And, you know, so this spring, you know, he was 92, 96 and he had more power to his slider, but he only pitched about, I think five or six innings in high school because he came down with mono and his control was shaky. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot, like a lot of, you know, ceiling here, but he's also has a long way to go to get there, but, but super interesting guy. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I probably am a little lighter on Noah Schultz than, than other people in the media, you know, evaluating draft players. Um, you know, not that I don't like him. I, I didn't, we had him ranked 49th on our list. And I honestly thought, and I was clearly wrong that I, I thought he was going to wind up at Vanderbilt. I like when people were asking me like who in your top 50 is going to be tough to sign. I thought it was going to be Noah Schultz. So I, I was not expecting him to, to go that high. Jim, I agree with you. Like this was, it was very strange for me just because, you know, me and Josh Nelson of Sox Machine, we were doing a live draft show at the time. And about five minutes before the pick, I start getting messages like, you know, really cryptic stuff. Like the White Sox are about to do something wild. And, you know, I kind of found out it was Schultz. We talked about it a minute before it happened. And like, I had heard that they really liked him and they were, they were very impressed. Like this summer he was pitching in like the local summer league. Right. But like, but like you, and like, you know, I didn't want to speculate completely on like the number, but like, I just thought it was, you know, over what the White Sox would be willing to do in the first round. And I didn't think they could get him to the second round and pay him because of their small bonus pool. So like, I just, what were your thoughts? I guess, like if the process like was similar, like how, how soon did you find out? And then did you kind of like go to the same place? Like, how are they going to sign this guy? How are they going to like punt the rest of their draft to do the whole thing was it was just like very strange and I do think that he's going to sign for like right around slot but getting to this point has just been you know kind of weird for me anyways you know it's a little peek behind the curtain like so it's kind of crazy but like while we're doing the the draft on live tv on MLB network MLB.com has me and and Jonathan Mayo the last two years because he's been stationed beside me rather than at the desk providing live commentary on the first round picks as they happen, even though we're doing live TV at the same time, which is kind of insane. And so to be honest, we're, we're basically trying to work two picks ahead just so we can like provide that live commentary. So it's ready to go when the guy gets picked and not so much um, like thinking it through, like, 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 like not pondering like, okay, this guy's on the board, who's going where, wherever. And so once we figured out the Yankees pick, I texted somebody with the White Sox and like the most teams are pretty good about this. We're not tweeting the picks early, but like I'll text the teams and say, Hey, like after Michael Romero went 24th, we found out pretty quickly Spencer Jones is going to go 25. And so I texted the White Sox and said, Hey, Spencer Jones is going 25. Can you help out with, with number pick 26 for, for TV prep purposes? And they know we're not going to tweet it out or, or do anything else until the pick's made. And so the White Sox told me Noah Schultz and my reaction when they texted to me was, was whoa exclamation point wasn't sure he was signable interesting so uh, I, I was caught off guard too um, you know from the from the money standpoint I kind of tend to assume that barring somebody failing a physical like uh, you know the over under on guys not signing in the first round is like a uh, first ten rounds is about one and a half I, I just figured they're going to pay him and I don't know you know just you know rounding numbers is it two and a half is it three but I just figured, yeah, like like you did, James. I, I figured that whatever his number was, they had to take him there to pay him. Even if it's two and a half, that would be more than double their slot at number two. You know, it was interesting. So did you think, like, I guess in my mind, I was like, oh, they're going to take Tucker Toman because we'd heard so much Tucker Toman. 
And then they didn't take Tucker Toman. And then nobody took Tucker Toman for a while. And I was like, wow, I wonder if Tucker Toman like priced himself out of the draft. And then the Blue Jays like really surprised me by taking him with the, I think the fourth to last pick of the first night at 77. And I'm like, whoa, like what are the Blue Jays doing? So like, I don't, I don't know what his number there is. So uh, anyway, I was more intrigued. I really liked their second and third picks. Um, and I was like, whoa, like this came together kind of nicely for them. Yeah. That, so that is where it like kind of tied together and made a lot of sense. And like, you know, like the, the night that it's made, obviously, like we're, we're fearing that, you know, they're going like way over slot. But like, honestly, like that's just not something they do. And the White Sox haven't done, you know, a prep pitcher in the first round in 20 years. So you know, one one last thing I just wanted to ask about this. I was with you like where I kind of thought like, OK, like, you know, this is a guy that's going to end up at Vandy. But but is it strange that he was pitching? I guess now it's not right. But like he was pitching here all summer. So would somebody going to school typically do that or no? That that's like already committed to going to campus. Yes. The fact that he pitched this summer, I think, was a sign to people that, hey, you know, he'll sign if the price is right. If he was going to Vanderbilt, I don't think he would have done that. And, you know, I don't know how many innings he pitched this summer. I don't know if you've tracked that down. I mean, I don't think it was a ton like you had this large body of work. But I think it was almost important too, just to show people, because like, I mean, I do know from talking to area scouts, a lot of guys felt like, ah, you know, he's got Boris, it's Vanderbilt, he hasn't pitched a lot, it's, you know, feels like there's a lot of Vandy vibes there, and I think by going and pitching that league, it sends a message, hey, I do want to sign, because 100%, if he was intent on going to Vanderbilt, why pitch in summer ball? So I, I think that did send a message to people, and, you know, I'm sure when he officially signs, and the White Sox talk about it, I'm sure, you know, talk about the process, I'm sure that will be mentioned. Jim, you mentioned it, the second and third round picks, a couple of pitchers. Noah Schultz, the only high school player the White Sox drafted this season, everybody else out of college. But I want to specifically focus on Peyton Pellet here because, you know, he had Tommy John surgery at the beginning of January, or I should say the 2022 season in January. And a lot of reports suggested that he could be a first round pick, maybe even one of the top pitchers off the board had he been healthy and the White Sox end up landing him in the second round. Now the Tommy John surgery is something the White Sox apparently are not afraid of. Mike Shirley, director of amateur scouting said as much that they're not super worried about players who have Tommy John because they either anticipate it or they prepare to bring them back. Another thing that stood out to me about that pick is the high spin rate on the secondary pitches. What does that tell you about Mike Shirley's draft philosophy or his fascination with a type of pitcher with that kind of stuff and even the threat of injury? Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of teams feel that way about Tommy John. You you just feel a lot more comfortable with it than you do with, say, a shoulder injury. You know, he's already had the Tommy John, I think, back in January. So I'm sure there were medical records. You could see how that went. You know, the, the rehab process is is very grueling and guys come back usually stronger than ever. So yeah, that, that part doesn't surprise me. I think a lot of teams are pretty comfortable with Tommy John surgery. And I mean, there are a lot of Tommy John surgery guys in this year's draft, like, you know, Dylan Lesko went ahead of him. Landon Sims went ahead of him. You know, there were, you know, Reggie Crawford went ahead of him. So I think he was the fourth guy coming back from Tommy John surgery. I can't remember where Prelip went in relation to him. Uh, I guess Prelip went before him. I mean, a lot of the guys did go before him. So, like, th- that part's not surprising. I mean, I-, I don't know that it's so much that, like, Mike Shirley's in the spin rate, spin rates just so much as – and he might be. Yeah, I mean, that would be a question for Mike and-, and the White Sox. I think it's more a question of, hey, <laughs> this guy's a first-round arm and he's here at the bottom of the second round. I mean, I assume, you know, he's getting over slot. I assumed, 
you know, they helped float him down there with, 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 you know, whatever number they've guaranteed him. I mean, you look at their draft. I mean, they went, you know, fifth year seniors at picks eight, nine, and 10. You know, I, I don't think, you know, four through seven, you know, their, their fourth and six picks had really disappointing years. I don't think four through seven are necessarily going to be, they're not going to be overslot guys. And maybe you get a little bit of a discount there. So I, I think a lot of that money will probably be going to Payton Paulette. But, but like with the curveball, I, I thought it was, I mean, even though he didn't pitch this year, when we did the, the best tools in the draft, it, it was the best curve in the draft. And so that, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know that Mike was like, oh, spin rates, as opposed to, hey, Peyton Paulette, if he's healthy, isn't available with pick 26. And here he is at pick 62. And, you know, he gets compared a lot to Walker Bueller, who also blew out his elbow. He actually, Bueller pitched through his junior season at Vanderbilt and then had Tommy John after he signed. But, um, you know, he gets some Walker Bueller comparisons. I, I think Bueller had more polish. Paulette had more stuff before they, they got hurt in, in, in college, but, but it's kind of similar builds. So I, I, to me, I, I guess next time you guys talk, I talk to Mike, you can ask him about the, the spin rates, but I think it was just more, mm-hmm. this is a great value. I mean, I know it's apples and oranges, Tommy John, college pitcher to high school pitcher. We, we had Peyton Paulette ranked ahead of Noah Schultz on our, our list. Yeah, and the spin rate stuff, like, I know it's league-wide, but I'm trying to figure out a trend if there is one with Mike Shirley's draft classes in relation to spin rate, because I think a Luke Schilling, who was not necessarily a draft pick of Shirley's, but he's been watching over him throughout his development path. Tanner McDougal is often somebody I reference. Jared Kelly had a secondary pitch that jumped off the page. So I'm just thinking of, you know, just some of the trends there. Maybe. I mean, but yeah, you know, I was going to say, you could also look at the, just those guys had really good stuff. You know, Platt had a very good mm-hmm. curveball. Kelly had a very good changeup. And even if you weren't into the data, I think those pitches would have stood out to you. So you, you guys should ask Mike that. That, that. That's a good question. I mean, I know we're all, we all try to figure out like, what, what's this guy? Like, what, like all the sky directors, like what, what's, what's their, bread and butter what they like to draft but it's it's hard they, they they mix it up on us a lot oh absolutely and we've seen that over the last three seasons with Shirley's first round decisions I mean talent and upside especially in the early rounds that that makes a ton of sense it's universal and unilateral across the league so yeah that that's interesting to me and let's stick with the pitchers though as I move on to the third round pick Jonathan Cannon I'd like for uh, you to try to project Peyton Paulette if you could foresee him down his development path if he's in a rotation where he slots in a White Sox rotation in the future, as well as what you think of Jonathan Cannon in the third round. Yeah, I think Paulette can maybe be, I think the ceiling is a number two starter. I mean, uh, all that's, you know, kind of dependent on, you know, who's in the White Sox rotation down the road. Like if they don't have a true number one, then maybe he's got, I mean, Paulette's got frontline stuff. And then Cannon, it was interesting, you know, this draft, you know, we talked about how the pitchers were confusing with all the injuries. And I will say, like, I do think there were more, you know, the kind of surprise picks at the top with Rocker and Horton and all those guys I mentioned at the end of the first round and, and guys. You know, I mentioned Tucker Toman, who you thought were going the first round and went at the end of the second. This is just like a lot of guys didn't go as high a, a, as you thought they might have gone. And, and there was some, even late in the season, some first round buzz on Jonathan Cannon. I didn't quite buy that, but I would have thought Jonathan Cannon would go. I don't know. Like I would have said upper half of the second round if you had me get. Like I would have said if you made me bet, I would have said John the Cannon does not get to Chicago's second round pick. And he got to their third round pick, which is 39 picks later. Yeah, he you know, he's interesting. I, I think he's more of a floor than a ceiling guy. You know, he added a cutter this year. That was a big part uh, a big part of his success. He's got a heavy fastball. You know, he was a guy who was eligible last year. He got mono. I think he got COVID too. He was just sick a lot in 2021. And so, you know, I don't know how often he was at full strength. And this year he came out really good. And I think he walked, I know he walked 12 batters in his first 13 starts. And it might've been like three in his first six. 
And then he had a forearm strain in April. And I didn't think he was as sharp when he came back. I mean, it wasn't like his stuff fell off the table. But to me, it's kind of average to solid stuff with very good control and, and solid commands. So I, I think he's like a number four. You know, if you can get a little bit more out of stuff, maybe he's a number three. Um, I do think he'll move pretty quick. Um, he's more polished. Then Paulette, and obviously he's not coming off Tommy John surgery. Like, you know, Paulette, I guess, would be probably ready to throw, like, in games toward the beginning of next season. You know, just from when he had the Tommy John. And not that Cannon's going to pitch a lot this summer. But I, I would expect that Cannon will probably move a little quicker than Paulette. So, Jim, they went to the uh, the position side in the fourth round with, an I think, an interesting guy that had a really bad season, Jordan Sprinkle. You know, they think... Shirley said that he's an elite athlete. You know, he said it, he said 80 grade speed in the press conference. What what does he need to do to just get back to kind of what he was prior to the season? And then where did where did he kind of peak for you guys? Because he, I mean, I saw like you know early season some people thought like maybe supplemental round for him, and then he just like didn't hit obviously all year. Yeah, no, I mean that that was that's correct. I, I think if he had had a good season, he would have gone in the top 40 picks. I mean, he hit. 353 last year. And I think if he'd replicated that again, you know, he had had 353 with seven homers as a sophomore and he hit 285 with three homers this year. And, you know, I I don't do the West, so I didn't dig in, you know, that was one John Tomeo's guy. So I didn't dig in specifically into, Hey, what's going on with Jordan Sprinkler? Like I, if we talk about Eric Adler, Eric Adler was in my demand and I was digging into like, what is going on with Eric Adler? But, um, you know, he, it's not like the strikeout rate like dramatically increased this year. I mean, he still made a decent amount of contact. You know, I think the strikeout rate was above, around, uh, you know, I don't know, around, like what was about 18% or so, 20%, somewhere around there. But he has to hit. I mean, if he doesn't hit, then nobody's going to be on it. But like, like, you know, he, I think he rebounded a little at the end of the year. You know, he's, he's arguably the best defensive shortstop in college baseball this year. He's a legit shortstop. We didn't quite have him as a in an eighty runner, but but he can he can run. He has very good instincts. He's gotten a little you know stronger this year, but I mean it's going to come down to the bat, you know. But you know basically, I mean not that this is a profound statement. If he hits, that could be a really nice fourth round pick because I think he's going to play really good defense. And if he doesn't hit, then he's not going to get to Chicago. Yeah, Mike Shirley speculated that he just. You know, he made an offhand comment that he thinks somebody told Jordan Sprinkle this year that he needed to hit for more power, and he tried to do that, and then it kind of, you know, snowballed from there. So I don't, I don't know if that's true, but that was something that was told to the media here. Well, which could be. I mean, sometimes that happens. You know, yeah. you know, like whether it's the team. You know, hey, we need more power, so we need you to step up. You know, and, and he had a really nice year last year. Or it could be somebody in his camps and hey, to go higher in the draft, and you drive the ball more, and he actually, you know, hit for less power and, and less average this year. So you mentioned Eric Adler. I'm going to get to him in a second. But the fifth rounder, Mike Shirley got his Indiana guy that we always talk yeah. about. Um, yeah. Ty- Tyler Schweitzer, you know, the, the White Sox have always kind of liked the Ball State program, even, you know, dating back to Nick Hostetler days. And and before that, he told an interesting story about Schweitzer, how he, he pitched or Shirley did about how he pitched on his son's like summer team like like two years ago and he was throwing 88 and getting people out. But this year, the stuff obviously – ticked up in a starter's role what what uh can you tell us about Tyler Schweitzer yeah he's um he's a really polished pitcher um he it's four straight year Ball State's had a pitcher go in the top um five rounds um the previous three guys were all hard throwers Dre Jamison Kyle Nicholas Chase McDermott and he's more of that polished lefty I mean now he does have 
high spin rates on the fastball um, with good induced vertical break. It's not, you know, he, he sits around 90. He'll top out at 95, but it's not like a, a radar gun fastball, but it just plays very well because he throws it on a very flat approach angle and it, and it carries up in the zone. He's got, you know, three average secondary pitches. I think the slider's probably the best. Um, both his his slider's got two-plane depth. His slider and his curve, you know, he'll flash them plus. Um, they both have good depth to them, and they play well off that fastball that stays up in the strike zone. Um, and even his changeup has some sync to it too. So he kind of gets you up top, you know, with, with carry on the fastball. And then if you look for that, you know, he's got three breaking pitches he can drop through the bottom of the zone and, and throw strikes. And his, his stuff held up well in his first season as a college starter. I, I think he's a, a, a high-floor you know, potential quick mover, um, you, you know, and like, you know, even the pellets coming off Tommy John, like I said, he's going to be healthy next year. I mean, you guys know this cause you, you look at their farm system all the time. They don't have a lot of advanced upper level pitching. You know, I mean, Davis Martin has been like a nice revelation this year, but he's 25. It's not like it's a, a huge ceiling. And, you know, I'm just looking at our prospect list. I mean, Sean Burke, you know, is, is starting to move kind of quickly. You know, he hasn't been as successful in double A. Jason Billowis has had a, a rough year. I mean, they just don't have upper level starters. And I think with Paulette and Cannon and Schweitzer, I mean, you have guys who, you know, could be in double A by the end of next year or the beginning of 2024. And, you know, we might look back, you know, in 2024, when we're talking, those might be their three best, you know, upper level pitching prospects at that point. So you mentioned uh, the sixth rounder, Eric Adler. You know, I thought he was interesting. I mean, obviously it was a it was a bad season. I saw where you had him ranked. You have him with two sixty grade pitches. But the thing that I found interesting, he was really really good in the Cape last year. This pick reminds me of Ian Hamilton and Cody Hoyer picks that they've made in the past and like they've referenced where they just like thought a guy their stuff would tick up in relief. And for whatever reason they were starting in college and it wasn't good. So what, what, uh, what happened to Eric Adler this year? Well, he couldn't throw strikes. I mean, he didn't really throw a lot of strikes last year, but you know, he, he pitched 18 innings in relief in 21. Um, he walked 15 guys, you know, he had a two ERA struck out a bunch of guys. Um, he gave up a bunch of unearned runs. So it wasn't like he was as dominant as that two ERA might've looked. He was pretty good in the Cape, although he walked seven and 16 innings. And then this year he did 25 walks and 21 innings and it just got to the point where they couldn't throw him. I mean, he did have 37 strikeouts. I mean, the stuff is, is super interesting. Um, you know, he's been purely a reliever in college, so it's not like he was miscast, but I mean, he is 98 with, with plenty of carry on his fastball. He's got a, a breaking ball that's curveball depth, slider velo, 80 to 85. He can turn it into a cutter um, that's that touches 92. He's athletic, but he just doesn't repeat his delivery or stay aligned to the plate. Um, and like it got to the point where he wasn't even getting guys to, I mean, he was striking guys out when he was around the plate, but he wasn't even getting any chases as he did in the past. Cause he was missing so badly. So, I mean, you could, I mean, yeah, you could dream on him. I, I like the Ian Hamilton comparison. I mean, that, that was kind of a similar situation where Hamilton had a bad draft year and then wound up in the big leagues, but like, you know, six round, I think that's fine. I, I think, I think the six rounds a decent spot for, for Adler, you know, I mean, the stuff is top three round stuff, you know, he's a reliever. So maybe it's like third round stuff, but he just didn't pitch well, but like, that's one where, I mean, if I'm the player development staff, I'm like, Hey, there's a lot to work with here. And he's athletic too. I mean, he should be able to repeat his delivery. I don't understand why. Cause it's not like he's one of these big, thick guys who, who, you know, you look at him and you're like, ah, you know, that guy just doesn't do it. 
it's just kind of a mystery, but he, he was really bad this year. Like, you know, like I said, 25 walks and an eight, eight, six ERA and 21 and a third innings. How would you describe the Cape Cod league and its meaning to major league baseball? I think it does mean a lot because it's, you're getting generally the best players in college baseball, all playing against each other. I mean, the Cape teams are better than, you know, your, t- you know, most of the college teams they're using wood bats. You get a lot more evaluation. So I think it does mean a lot. Um, I do think people have a hard time, you know, getting the Cape out of their head, you know, both ways. Like, I, I don't know that it, I mean, I'm sure the Cape helped Eric Adler a little bit in that you're like, okay, you know, he only averaged four walks per nine, you know, small sample size in the Cape and it was pretty dominant. At the same time, you're still saying, geez, this guy walked more than a guy per inning and we couldn't pitch him because he was so bad. But, um, but no, you'll see. Guys who um, I, I think if you're in a small conference or a mid-major conference, it helps if you performed well in the Cape. You've kind of answered that question like, oh, like, like I'll give you an example. Tyler Locklear of VCU who, you know, hit the ball probably about as hard as anybody in college baseball, had a really nice year. He tied for the home run lead in the Cape last summer. And I think that validated, you know, you know, Tyler Locklear, VCU, I, I can never keep my college conferences straight. I think that's Atlantic 10. And, and so if you had some misgivings like, oh, you know, Tyler Locklear, not sure about his competition, he helped answer that. And and similarly, you, you'll see it work against guys sometimes too, where, you know, guys are supposed to have big power and they go up to the Cape and they don't hit for power with wood. That's going to be in the back of everybody's mind too. So so it, it, does, it does mean a lot. And I mean, I do think, there are times when the Cape can mean, you know, as much as, as the season means. Anybody else, I guess, just, you know, I know it seemed like day two money savers. There were a couple of guys I thought were interesting on day three. Anybody else in the class that they took uh, stand out to you that we should be paying attention to? I mean, not as like, Hey, you know, this guy's a future star, but like, you know, they, they got a Mark McLaughlin, you know, was a very effective reliever at Tennessee. You know, Michael Turner's an older guy. He'll be, 24 next month. He's a discount guy. They got in the ninth round, but he can catch. And he had a nice offensive season, you know, nice playoff for Arkansas. Tim Elko is kind of a legend at Ole Miss. You know, he was homering on torn ACL last year and he helped to win the college world series this year. Again, he's a fifth year guy. He'll be 24 in December, but he's not bad. And, you know, Brooks Baldwin's a performer. They got in the 12th round. Tristan Stevers, they got in the 16th round, led division. I think he led division one in saves. And he pitched, I think they ran to Stanford in the regional, right? And, and I think he started against them and they had a lead going into the ninth inning and, and the team blew the lead, but he, he's got a, a slider. That's a pretty interesting pitch. And, and Nick Altermott, uh, their 17th rounder was actually on my radar as one of the better prospects in Minnesota. He was at, at Mankato state and you know, he can show you some velocity and he was a two way guy. And, you know, maybe he takes a step up now that he's focusing on pitching. So, you know, I, mean, I, I think, most of their top guys, you know, I mean, it's not always like this. I, I think the bulk of their value in their draft did come from their their top six round picks because they went heavy seniors after that. But the, but there are a number of interesting guys on here. So in regards to the coverage of the draft this year, second year in which it's been pushed back to this week of the All Star break, and it looks like it's coming back for the same schedule next year. How did you feel about the coverage? How do you feel about the way Major League Baseball executed the Futures game? We'll bring up Oscar Colas in a second who participated. Just your overall feel of the entire process and the outcome of the coverage. Um, I mean, I, I think it, the the production on the TV show, the first night of the draft, when you have a live audience and fans there, and, you know, you had the LA Live set, and you know we were on the balcony of the 
of, I guess the Staples Center is now the crypto.com arena. You know, you get more players to draft. I think all that's good. I mean, I do think if you surveyed 30 teams and asked them if they like having the draft in July, all 30 teams would give you a resounding no. By putting the draft, this year was even a week later than it was last year, by putting the draft in mid-July, teams, it cuts into their ability to work on the 2023 guys who are playing in the Cape League and summer showcases, cuts in their ability to work on the trade deadline, whether they're buyers or sellers, because you have people being stretched in different directions. You also now have, this year because the draft was so late, it's like mad scramble where you're going to have a bunch of players signing. Not that I think that, you know, most guys know what they're going to sign for when they're picked. So it's not like you have a lot of hard and fast negotiations, but you have a lot of logistics you're trying to go through with physicals and signings and that type of thing while you're trying to make trades this week because the trade deadline is, what, a week from Monday, I think. Um, so I, I think the show comes out looking really good. Um, but. I do know teams would much prefer to have the draft in June. That said, I don't think we're going to have the, ever have the draft in, in early to mid-June again because of the combine. And I think MLB really likes the combine and that's not going anywhere. But you know, maybe a compromise that would work well for everybody is, is maybe you have the draft in Omaha after the College World Series, like right when it ends, like and then have the draft the next three days. But And I haven't heard any plans that they're doing that. But I do know if you surveyed the teams – it would be 30 to zero to have the draft at some point in June. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, PG national was like the day after the draft last year. I think it was before the draft, James. I think they had PG national before the 2021 draft. So it's just, there's a lot going on in the summer and and yeah, I know people might say, Oh, you know, people resistant to change, but like, it's just, there's an awful lot crammed into the calendar in mid July now. Um, and if, if it were up to me, not that they've asked me, I, I would spread it out a little bit more. But, but I do think it definitely makes a better TV show having it, you know, uh, you know, at the site of the All-Star Game rather than in the studio in Secaucus and you get more players there. there. There's no question. I think there's more atmosphere around that first day of the draft. Yeah, the first, yeah I would do the first day for sure. So, you know, the Futures game, and obviously we don't have to get into, like, the obvious questions there, like whether that's in the right spot or not. I, I was more just, you know, just going to ask you about the two players. So, Colson Montgomery, off to a huge, you know, start. Obviously, he he was not selected for the Futures game. Do you have any – is there any, like, insight into whether, like, you know, maybe they don't think he's going to go twice and he would go next year instead or no, anything along it, those lines? I mean, it, it's so – it, it's the process is a little different now. Like like years ago, we'd have a big conference call, and you would sit there and we'd hash everything out. Like the, the biggest thing with selections to futures game that people the, I guess people lose sight of sometimes. I'm not I'm not saying you is that one in some cases the players that fans are like why isn't this guy in the game wasn't approved the player wasn't approved by his major league organization, which was not the case with Colson. But then the second factor is it's a jigsaw puzzle and. I can't remember off the top of my head if we took, I think we take seven infielders. It's like seven infielders, three catchers, five outfielders, 10 pitchers, something like that. And anyway, you're trying to take at least one guy from every team. So you get some teams where they have no obvious candidate and like, well, we got to take this guy. And then that guy, you know, fills in a, a position or you could take no more than two. And so sometimes it's like, geez, you know, we, this team's got four guys who deserve to go, but we can only take two. Sometimes we'll take three. Um, and so anyway, in the past, we'd have a conference call where we'd work through all that. And now it's more like we submit, like some of us who are asked, submit suggestions as to who 
we would put on the roster from a list of candidates. And then MLB just kind of picks, like, it's not like a, a pure vote, if that makes sense. Like, like I'll, I'll submit, like, here's who I would pick. And so do some other people, but I don't think they tally them up and say, okay, like these are the best guys. And like, so anyway, getting back to Colson, the position that's usually like has more candidates than any other on any team on both teams are the infielders. Like you have 10 or 12 guys who are deserving picks and Colson would have been a deserving pick, but you can't take 10 or 12 infielders because you got to fill out the other positions and you couldn't play 10 or 12 infielders. So I think it was more, that was the case um, than anything. And I also think we needed the, the outfield crop was not the strongest part of the American league team. And so it was like, you know, Montgomery was a good candidate. Colos was a good candidate, but we had a million infielders and we needed outfielders. So I really think that was more what went into the decision than anything. So it's, you know, it sounds like Oscar Colas had a fairly impressive BP session. He made a catch in center field. Um, and he just takeaways from seeing him again. And then, you know, did he, I guess, does he look like he belonged with like some of the other players on that field? Yeah, no, he had a good game. He had a hit. He took a good BP. As you mentioned, it was, uh, the game's a little bit of a blur because I also did the home run derby that day and I was working on a mock draft. So like that was actually the day before the draft was probably my busiest day out there. I worked like a 21 hour day, which was insane. I want to say he made a diving catch of a line drive. Is that right? Yeah. Am I remembering yeah. That? yeah. In, in um, I knew that. I knew it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I told you, like, it was not, we did not have a lot of obvious outfield candidates for the American League. And, you know, we, you know, we didn't have a lot, you know, we, Jason Dominguez, who, who's super interesting, he, he made a, a gaffe in center field, but he also hit a two run homer. But no, Colos looked good. He didn't look out of place. I mean, like, occasionally you'll see a guy on, on in the game who looks a little overmatched, and, and he certainly didn't look overmatched. You mentioned the 21-hour day, Jim. I mean, that's more insight on why the schedule of this entire product can be problematic. We talked to Joe Doyle of Prospects Live. He mentioned all of the events going on at once, and it's impossible for one person to be able to see everything and consume everything and report on it accurately. So, I mean, chalk another one up for uh, the 30 to nothing vote. So when it comes to the White Sox top prospects here in the farm system, as we focus on more so down the line because of the young talent that will take maybe another year or two of development. Christian Mena is really, really exciting, as well as Norhe Vera. Now, I included those two arms because you, know, you, you talked about the significance of pitching and the lack um, of immediate resources in the Sox system right now. But I, I like to focus on those two players because they're unique in their development path. Vera is older, but he is experiencing his first year stateside while Christian Mena came over as an international signing at 17 years old. He's now 19 pitching an advanced A. What can you tell us about those two players and uh, as as big league talent potentially? Yeah, you know, Vera is a super interesting guy. You know, he was a million and a half dollar signing out of Cuba. You know, it's it's no secret that they get a lot of the best Cuban players on the international market. Um, makes me feel old. I saw his dad at the uh, Olympics like many years ago. And, you know, he's got a big time arm. He can touch a hundred. Uh, his curveball can show flashes of being a plus pitch. He's got feel for a change up. He's like a lot of the Cubans do. He's got a million pitches. I think he's got a slider and a splitter, but the, the White Sox have wanted him to focus on more of a three pitch mix. And, you know, we haven't seen a ton of him. You know, a lot of the Cubans go to the DSL for tax purposes for when they get their bonus paid out their first year in pro ball. And he had some, he did that and he had some, some shoulder stiffness last year. So, you know, him pitching with that stuff as tw at age 21 against 
you know, really young teenage players in Dominican summer league wasn't a task this year. He had a, a lat strain in spring training. So they brought him along slowly before bringing him to Canapolis. And he's been, you know, pitching like three inning starts and, and the stuff has looked good. He, he's pitched well, um, you know, he needs to throw more strikes, but I think the consensus would be that he's the best pitching prospect in the system. I mean, where do you guys have him? You guys would agree with that, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, Mania is super interesting because, you know, teams don't sign a lot of expensive pitchers out internationally, I think, because the guys are so young and there's so much risk. And so Mania was the White Sox highest, you know, bonus pitcher in the 2019 international class, but he signed for $250,000, which is not a huge bonus by any means. And, you know, his career got a late start because, you know, usually you don't pitch that first year when you sign. And then, so then he would have pitched in 2020 and the pandemic came. And so we didn't get to see that. He went to the Arizona Complex League in 21 and made his pro debut and got knocked around pretty good for a 7.82 ERA. But he also, like, you could see some arm strength there. He led the ACL in strikeout rate, 11.5 per nine innings. And, and it was intriguing. And, you know, I don't think it's so much that the stuff has made like, I, I think the stuff is, is similar, you know, maybe it's a little bit better than it was last year, but the control and command are significantly better. And, you know, he went to low A and kind of breezed through that in, in 11 starts and he's pitching well, you know, not throwing quite as many strikes in high A, but he's, he's pitching well in high A at age 19. And I mean, you could have, your know, curveball is probably the best pitch. I think the fastball and changeup have a chance to be solid. And, you know, our, our rankings were done before the season, so we won't update them till after the signing deadline, after the trade deadline. But, I mean, I think you could you could make a case. I don't know that it'll come out exactly this way. That Chris Jimena might be their, their second best pitching prospect in their system, not counting the guys they just brought in via the draft. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's fair. I think you could definitely make that case. So one of the guys... I have a question about uh, Lenin Sosa, just, and I don't know if you'll even be able to answer it, right? But he has the huge year at Birmingham that even we weren't expecting either. I think you had him adequately ranked. I think he was like 21 for you guys in the preseason or like right in that range. So then he has the monster season. He gets called up and Sox fans like all over Twitter. And obviously like Twitter's not real life all the time, right? It's like, this guy's the number 21 prospect and they're referencing your list, which I mean, you're not going to re-rank yet, right? But just speculating, like he's probably in the top ten of that list, I would imagine right now. Yeah, I mean that's that's the tricky thing with our list. I mean, I know Baseball America this year has updated their list a couple times during the season, and like Fangraphs just I think completed some of their list pretty recently. Um, but like <laughs> our play, and, and like .com likes to cite where guys are ranked too, like in stories all the time. So they'll, they'll constantly hit you over the head where guys are ranked. It's not like there's a a date on these. But you have to know when the rankings were done. And like like you said, I mean, look, I, I've gotten rankings wrong before. I mean, nobody ever gets perfect. And so I'm happy to admit it. Like, I don't feel bad about where I ranked Lenin Sosa coming into the year because, I mean, you always knew like, okay, he's got good bat-to-ball skills, but he swings at everything. And if you looked at, you know, he's always kind of young for his level. But like last year, he had a almost seven to one strikeout to walk ratio. And, you know, the power wasn't really coming because, you know, he was, putting balls in play that he should have let go. Um, but so anyway, yeah, I mean, our ranking is basically from February and March. And and I would say, yeah, he, he should move up. You know, I mean, I, I would think he'd be in the top 10. I would think, again, I haven't like tried to put this together, but like Schultz and Paulette and Jonathan Cannon will all probably be in the top 10 too. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think he's he's definitely moved himself up. You know, and, and, you know he's, he's one of the better young hitters in the farm system. I'm not sure. 
I would take him. He's having a better year than Jose Rodriguez. I would still take Jose Rodriguez over Lenin Sosa, but the gap is a lot closer than it was coming into the year. Yeah, so that's the last thing I was going to ask you, and you kind of hinted towards it. And obviously, like, you haven't looked at it yet, but, you know, on this podcast, like, we've had the discussion. How do we rank Noah Schultz and, and Peyton Paulette once we go to do this after the trade deadline? You know, do you do you put Noah Schultz and Peyton Paulette, like, above Norhe Vera? I mean, they're all in the top 10, for sure. It's just, you know, these are these are difficult questions that we're going to have to answer over the next few weeks, too, I feel like. Yeah, and it's funny because I really haven't thought it through. I mean, I think they're all in the same area. Like, to me, Colson Montgomery is still number one. And I would put Oscar Colas number two. I'd probably keep those guys one and two. And then I think, you know, when you're talking the pitchers, you know, Vera and Paulette and, and Schultz would all kind of be in the, in the same area. You know, Noah Schultz, you know, really hasn't done a whole lot, but he's also three years younger than Norhe Vera too. And it's not like Norhe Vera's Norhe Vera's pitched 17 innings in the United States to this point. So it, it'll be interesting trying to figure that one out. Jim, you're awesome. Thanks so much for all the coverage again. Uh, so you're following the signings, right? Uh, yep. Those drafted, trying to get all those uh, taken care of. And then we're looking forward to the trade deadline. There's a lot of value that's going to be mixed around the league and you'll have everything for the reader and baseball fans at MLB pipeline. What else can we look forward to? I know the rankings are coming out soon. Uh, do you have any time to rest? <laughs> Not really right now. Um, we got to get going on the on the rankings, which I do. I mean, we used to have the rankings done before the trade deadline in advance. So, you know, one of the nice things was like if Lenin Sosa, let's say the White Sox trade a Lenin Sosa, it's not like, oh, he's the number 21 prospect in the system. We'd have updated rankings. And there's just with the draft where it is, and everything else going on with the futures game and and what have you, and, and preparing for day two of the draft, there's just not time to, for us to do it. We we have essentially three full time prospect writers, uh, and and Jonathan Mayo and I are devoted pretty much full time to the draft for a while, and, and the third Sam Dykstra. So it, it's kind of you know th- this upcoming week we'll be trying to kind of get organized so I can start making calls to teams and and pro scouts and get on that type of stuff. Uh, and I don't know exactly when we're going to have our, our rankings updated, um, <laughs> which is uh, uh, weird to say, but like we, we basically have to get through the trade deadline and the signing deadline first. Um, so, and that'll, you know, that's the thing that, that sometimes can be a little confusing when you see Lenin Sosa at 21 is if the White Sox make a trade, we'll update their top 30. Like the White Sox trade two guys off their top 30. We'll remove them immediately. So it'll look like, oh, it looks like it's updated or, it's maybe more visible. Like if you're the Cubs and the Cubs trade Wilson Contreras and get three prospects and are on the list, you're like, Oh, this is updated. But like the new guys are updated in terms of where they rank, but the old guys, those rankings are from before spring training. So it's, it's like a weird mishmash until we get everything straightened out. Jim Callis. Thanks uh, so much for being with us again on the future sucks podcast. Oh yeah. Anytime. I always enjoy talking to you guys. Jim Callis is the man. He's my favorite. I love talking to Jim. Yeah. That dude's awesome. And the thing is, like, we could have, like, went for, like, hours, like, on other topics, right? Like, the Futures game's in the wrong spot. Like, you know, we could have talked about that. He could he could do trade deadline stuff. Like, there's just all... And I feel like with what we do and, like, the time of the year that it is, like, we needed his thoughts on, like, the top draft pick. So that's, like, what had to be the focus of the show, obviously. But, like, we could have taken it, like, a bunch of different directions. I just kind of feel like that's that's where we are, like, in, in the cycle right now. Yeah, I mean, he recognized the Lenin Sosa value, but I was really encouraged by what he was talking about with Vera and Mena. Insight on pitching, you know, is great, but he went in depth. I think 
the top three picks, uh, Schultz, Cannon, and Paulette, can really rise through the system quickly. And he talked about, you know, outside of Schultz, two starters at their ceiling, and one of them potentially a two. I mean, that's that's some high praise from Callis. Yeah, they did really like. I like this White Sox draft, and you know, we talked on our our post show a lot about Schultz, and the whole thing was weird to me. I said I kind of feel dumb just because, like, I, you know, I had a lot of really good intel that they really, really liked Noah Schultz. But it just, like, didn't line up because of the money and everything we've talked about and Boris and Vanderbilt. And But I kept, like, they really like him. Like, they're the team that's on him. And, you know, like, a lot of people thought he was going to Vanderbilt, but he was still pitching this summer. And it's just weird. I just think, like, somewhere along the way, something happened where, like, that kid decided that he wanted to go pro and, he, and you know, he's going to sign with the White Sox here any day now for close to the slot amount. And then, in the end, then we'll see what happens, right? But even, like, that's a big upside swing, but then insulating yourself afterward with, like, some of the picks you were talking about is good. But then even, like, picks, I think, in rounds four, five, and six were good. They were all on the the pipeline top 250. And then there was a couple of interesting things on day three as well. So, you know, I, I think they, uh, I think they did a pretty interesting job and then we'll see how many of these guys go out and actually play at affiliates to close out the year. I'm really excited about Jordan Sprinkle. Great defender. You heard Callis talk about his speed. I would rate him as what a 70 grade runner at this point. He didn't say quite 80, but that's an insane athlete that you just picked up who plays shortstop. Yeah. Like even, I feel like I talked to Josh Nelson about this too. Like the thing is like he, he was like getting supplemental first round love, like in mock drafts. And like, even if he doesn't really hit, like he's still valuable, like in your, like an 80 grade or a, you know, a plus defender at short with 70 to 80 grade speed is like a, you know, a big leaguer. I mean, if he hits like it's, it's even better than that. So, you know, I, I feel comfortable with what the White Sox have done you know, with some of their offensive prospects, with some of their gains, like we talked to Andy Barquette and, you know, it seems like a good plan down there finally. So, we'll, you know, we'll see what they can do with Jordan Sprinkle. I, you know, they had a couple other just that I'll touch on quickly. You know, they, they drafted a outfielder, Jacob Burke out of Miami in the 11th mm-hmm. and, and there's not much on him, but like, you know, usually 11th round picks get paid. My guess is he's going to get like 150 K or so. He was a two sport athlete. The Sox love their football players. You know, he's a center fielder. He hit 13 homers. He's got, he's like a two to one strikeout to walk guy. They, you, they don't usually draft guys like that. They usually shy away from the strikeout guys. So, you know, maybe they see something in him, but it's good. He's like a big physical center fielder that hit for power. And then the Brooks Baldwin kid has a lot of people that like him. Like he's from UNC Wilmington. He was the, uh, whatever American association that, that conference is, player of the year. He plays like seven different positions. And, you know, we talked about the Cape Cod league, like he was a monster on the Cape, you know, with just a bunch of hits. He's probably like a future utility guy, but I mean, that's a 12th round pick. And the White Sox have had a lot of success getting guys like this to the majors. Like Danny Mendick was like a 22nd rounder. Romy Gonzalez was in the 18th, Adam Engel in the 19th. Sebi Zavala has come up and helped. He was a 12th rounder. So like these third day picks, like aren't, aren't always throwaway picks to save money. Some of them are guys that develop and move through your system and they end up being like, you know, pieces to trade or pieces on a bench or, you know, in the big leagues, helping a team that's trying to contend. I count 12 pitchers drafted in this class, James. What did you think about that strategy? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I'm I'm not I, like, I'm a little bit surprised that they took eight position players just because like, I don't know where all these guys are going to play, but it does seem like a Mike Shirley thing to, and maybe it's like Chris Getz influenced 
get some college players in to like insulate your lower minors, you know, especially with all the Latin American players you have, try to get them all on the same page. You want leaders. We talked about this already on the other podcast, but like Tim Elko and the catcher from Arkansas were both senior team captains, like senior leader type guys. Same thing with uh, Camaletti out of Central Michigan. I mean, those are cheap signings that come into your system and they play in the minors and, you know, they have a shot, but they're also helping, you know, your big time prospects down there, like do all the things that they need to do to eventually become big leaders. Hopefully preseason finds the White Sox uh, with a different top 30 because that means they were aggressive at the deadline. And if they were aggressive at the deadline, that means they were trying for a World Series. And I'm speaking in future tense right now because I want to convince myself this big league White Sox team can win a World Series with this core, but I doubt it. Hey, did I say that out loud? James, it's been fun. Thanks so much for doing what you do here on the Future Sox podcast. We talked to Jim Callis today. Until next Tuesday. For James Fox, Jim Callis, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for listening to the Future Sox podcast. We'll talk to you all next time.